Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. While you're turning there, if I could encourage you, I don't know what kind of response you have when you hear of things that people are going through and struggling with. I don't know what you think or what goes through your head or what, what, you, what happens inside of you when, there's, when you hear stories of dysfunction and stories of how people can be very unkind to each other. I know what we usually feel like when that's directed toward us. But if there's something I, I was just, if there's something I think that should be universal in us as believers, when we hear of dysfunction and the depravity of man and how evil we are, I think sometimes we get indignant. And I believe a lot more times, instead of indignance, we should be, we should be a lot more sad. at the devastation of sin, at the pain that our, that our sin against the holy God causes. I don't want to make a big deal about it, and I don't want to be, make accusations about it. Certainly, I, it's a reflection of, my, of myself. I hope you understand that. But I think when I become indignant, when we become indignant about it, it's, I mean, I'm not saying that's totally bad, but when we become indignant about it, it somehow still puts us here and the dysfunction and the evil and the stuff that people would do to each other down here as if we would never. And I think sometimes we think that, right? Like we would never do that. And I hope we wouldn't because when the Holy Spirit is in us, we don't. But what I guess I'm driving at is the fact that we don't want to too quickly separate ourselves from the reality that were it not for the Holy Spirit and God's grace operating in us and the reminder that we too once walked in darkness, as Paul said. We too once walked as the world walked. We too once thought like they thought and did what they did. And if nothing else, it should be a reminder because of how much we love God, it should be a reminder of what an awful shame sin is to a holy God. And I don't think we ought to grieve about that. I think lamenting is something we don't do very much of. And I think when we see in the Bible, they forgot to lament over sin of any kind. They forget to lament over their own sin. And they forget that they should even be sad about sin at all. And then they walk away from God. And I don't want that. I don't want that for us. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for any of us. It reminds me when we began the study of Nehemiah that he was greatly affected in this way by what, knowing the state of Jerusalem. And I don't think it was just the walls, by the way. I think it was the realization of the depravity and the sinfulness of man and what the outcome of that is. Pain and heartache and separation and bad relationships and bad decisions and dysfunction and hurt and confusion and anger towards each other and bitterness and all kinds of stuff that are the results of sin. And if I have to believe my Bible, which I should, then my Bible says that we're all guilty of that. Well, 
That's not what the message is about. Nehemiah 6. Let's read together. We're going to pick back up in verse 1 and go to verse 14 today. Let's just read and then we'll move through the text this morning. There is a connection back and I'll wait to make those connections until we get there. Verse 1, now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekephrim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Verse 5, in the same way Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you were building the wall. And according to these reports, you have wished to become their king. That's pointed at Nehemiah. You wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you, have, have, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all want to frighten us, thinking their hand will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehatabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadia and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Father, once again, we're hearing your word, and we want you to teach us. We have been so grateful to be together this morning already. You have, you have made it obvious that your presence is here with us, and so we simply sit here waiting to hear from you, to instruct us, to teach us. We recognize that you have the right to do that, and so we ask for you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you remember that I had called a couple of messages. I don't put the titles back up here, but you see them on your handout on the backside. I had called a couple of messages uh, earlier, the, the battle to build, because as we saw them start to build the wall up, we recognized there was opposition. And we talked about how the opposition came. It came from the outside. It came from the inside. It came from different sources. They said different things about it. But all of it was pointed to the fact that they wanted to stop the work that was happening. And, of course, we pulled that over into our world today and said, hey, we have to recognize that when we want to rebuild things in our lives, if we want to reform things, if we want to grow closer to God, if we want to mature in Christ, which I hope you want to, if we want to, then there's going to be opposition. There's going to be people that are going to come or things that are going to happen. The enemy is going to come and he's going to want to distract you from that. He's going to want to call you away from that or, or to remind you all the reasons why you can't do it or why you shouldn't do it, all this stuff. 
And we kind of had this interlude where, uh, and, and I, well, we had this interlude where we stopped focusing on the building of the wall and the opposition, and suddenly Nehemiah said, hey, here's some changes I made. We, uh, he was being generous, and he said, I'm going to stop taxing people or, or charging interest to people, and, and some things he made, and I encouraged us to think about the fact that that was not like an interruption. That was, that was helping us to see that while the outside work was happening, the inside work had to happen too. And to show you that I think that's exactly what Nehemiah intended us to think is to come back today now and say, oh, by the way, we're just continuing on. The wall is going up. And in this case, we see that the wall was now built all the way up. The gates weren't in yet, but the work is being done. It's almost done, in fact, but the opposition hasn't stopped. So we're going to jump in today, look at a couple of things, but I really want to get through this first part as much as I can because I want to spend some time at the end just looking at some things that we can learn for us today, applying some things. I try to have some application about every message I preach. Today, we're going to spend a little more time with it at the end here. The things we see are pretty obvious, right? The opposition, once again, it comes from two different sources. One is from the inside, uh, outside, one is from the inside. Now, we read the first part that when Sambalat and Tobiah heard that the wall was being built, they said, we're going to make some last-ditch efforts. The first effort we, of course, see is that they said, come and let us meet together at Hekephrim in the plain of Ono. Now, that's outside of Jerusalem. Now, we don't need to know exactly where it's at. It doesn't really matter. We know it's, it's, it's pulled away. In fact, there's some discussion exactly what town that's referring to because there is a, we don't need to know that stuff. What we need to know is that they were trying to get Nehemiah, who was the, the leader, who's the guy that held all this together, the guy that's, that's keeping the, everyone informed and keeping them going. They were saying, we're going to call the leader away from the work because if we do that, then the work will stop. And look at the tactic they employ. They're, I mean, I don't know if all about you, but when I read through that, it, it makes me chuckle and smile because they're, they're, they're being really devious and yet also being quite obvious, right? Hey, come meet us out here. And when it doesn't work, look at what happens. He sends an open letter in the hand of his servant to Nehemiah. Now, I want us to understand a few things about this. First of all, sending an open letter by itself, regardless of what it says, sending an open letter in communication like that was an insult for them. Notice, think of every other reference you might think of. When things get communicated among leaders and among kings, it's sealed. It's a big deal, right? Think of Daniel. Like things have to be sealed with the king's seal. It's authentic. It's hidden. No one gets to see it except for the guy who needs to see it. And this guy, Sambalat, goes exactly the opposite. Now think about why he does that. Open letter. What does he hope happens, in fact? The letter is actually, well, the letter's part of the point, but the method is just as much part of the point. He's hoping all along the way, in fact, my guess is he gave his servant those kind of instructions. He's hoping all along the way that he can, uh, he can the letter can be read by people. Because look what it says. Hey, we know you're going to rebel. But look what else it says. We heard that you want to become the king. You see how that's trying to draw people into saying, even if you're not against the rebuilding of the wall, if you're not sure you're like Nehemiah, or you're not sure you're like people coming from the outside and coming in and acting like they're in charge and suddenly they're your boss, then you're going to also go against him, even though you maybe you were in favor of rebuilding the wall. You see what's happening? They're trying to bring other people in, to, and they're also trying to make sure that if people know what this letter says, now Nehemiah is held to that he has to go out and answer this. Because look at these charges. Nehemiah, even if you agree with Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you got to go out and tell them it's not like that. You can't let that go back to the king. You can't let them think that there's going to be this rebellion because then they're going to come in and kill us all. So you got to go out there and take care of it, Nehemiah, even if you're on Nehemiah's side. You see how that works? It's the same tactic that the, uh, 
uh, what was his name? The um, just went out of my head. I, I think it's the 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 Reb the Reb Shaker. What what was his name? The guy back in in Kings when they when the when the uh, Assyrians come and and they, they talk to the guy on the gate and he speaks to them in. Uh, in their own language, and the guy's like, hey, hey, speak to me in a different language because I can understand. And he says, no, no, I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to everybody that's on the wall listening to you. It was intimidation. Anybody, what was this guy's name? The Rav Shaker. Isn't that his name? Uh, that doesn't sound quite right. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But it's the same tactic of saying, it's, yes, I'm sending you a message. It's for you. But I'm also employing every tactic I can to put the pressure on you to do what I want you to do. I'm going to be underhanded. I'm going to be sneaky. I'm going to use every bit of leverage that I can get. Now, we're going to hang on to Nehemiah's response for a little bit because we're going to talk about the other thing that happened. The other attempt at stopping the work, again, this one comes from the outside. The next one comes from the inside. Look at what this guy says. Now, this guy is Jewish, right? He's a Jew. He's living in Jerusalem, which there weren't actually all that many people living in Jerusalem yet. He's living inside of Jerusalem. He's hiding in his house. And he comes to Nehemiah and he says, hey, come. You know what? They're going to come try to kill you. Which, were there threats against his life? Make sure you're awake. Were there threats against his life? Yes, absolutely. They're going to come try to kill you. Come, let's go to the temple, the place where they're not going to be able to get into or they're not allowed to get into or the place that we know everyone will protect. You come hide in here and then we'll keep you safe. End result is the same as if he would have gone out to Hekephrim, right? Because now he's in the temple hiding and he's also not doing what he's supposed to be doing. You see it's the same effort from some different uh, place of reference. Now, we get some clues in here. We see that this guy was actually hired by the same guy that was doing the open letter. So it's all part of the same opposition. But the truth still is that they made an effort multiple ways. They made an effort to say, hey, you don't want the king to find out what you're doing. Which, again, think about the lies the enemy uses. Does the king know what Nehemiah is doing? Does he? Yeah. Did the king, in fact, send Nehemiah? Did he give him, like, money to go with him? Did he give him a letter to say, hey, make sure people give? Yeah, the king is well aware of what Nehemiah is doing. Also, by the way, since Nehemiah knows the king pretty well, if there's a concern about that, don't you think Nehemiah could just go directly to the king and make sure? Think about what I just said. What the enemy, your enemy, Satan, does all the time. He tells you things about what God might be thinking when you can just go to God and ask him and find out if that's what he really means or thinks. Right? It's classic Satan tactic in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Well, go find out if God really said that. Go check with God. You have access to the king. Come. Make sure that you take care of this thing. Make sure you protect your life. Do you understand how that's even appealing if Nehemiah were such a man? It's appealing to his vanity. Nehemiah. You're a really important guy. we got to protect you. You direct the work from where you're at, but you come hide in the temple. Now, by the way, there's a little question mark about what that exactly means because there, there is a potential that what he's referring to in the temple is actually a place that Nehemiah is not even allowed to be. Right? Because there's only certain places open to certain people, and Nehemiah is not a priest. Now, whether it means that or not, we're not it's not exactly clear in the text. He doesn't, he doesn't specifically say which part of the temple he means, but it is clear he means you can be shut in somewhere, protected. 
So whether it's the fact that he's trying to get Nehemiah to openly sin by going into a place he's not supposed to be, or in either case, Nehemiah saw to sin, but to sin by withdrawing and hiding in fear so, and the work would stop, either case, the mission's accomplished. Well, I told you I want to keep moving through this, so I don't want to make, belabor those points. Nehemiah's response, I'm going to go to the end of the text we had because here's Nehemiah's response, and we should see this doubled up. What were the last words that we read in the last text about Nehemiah's reforms? Anybody remember what they are? I actually asked us about it at the end of the last week's message, whether you're okay with this, if, if that would be a benefit to you or not. What were those words? If you want to need a clue, go back and read verse 19 of Nehemiah 5. What? Remember me. Remember me. Now, what does he say here? Oh, God, by the way, remember them too. Remember them too, what they've done. Nehemiah, at every point along the way, is aware of what they are asking for, of what they're trying to do. And he rebuts it at every point of the way. Let me make a couple of points. I didn't have any of these last week, and I want to make a couple of points about a godly leader today because they're instructive to us. Here we see something that is really critical for a godly leader. A godly leader stays, we shouldn't, I actually had to look back because I thought we already had this one, but we didn't, so I put it in here. A godly leader stays focused on the task. A godly leader knows what his task is, and he stays focused. He's not distracted. Notice both of those, just like there were some other times, this is more clear. They were distractions. That's all they wanted. They wanted to distract him from the work that was happening. But more to the point, I want to make another point about this. That's really kind of the same thing, but a little more specific. A godly leader does not waste time addressing things that are outside of his control. Let me show you what I mean. Do you notice, like, the open letter, what, is, what does he say? I, I, did, I, I mean, I literally chuckled out loud when I read this at home at my desk. When the letter comes to him, it says, it's reported among the nations. Now, that's a pretty big opening line. And then he says, oh, and Geshem also says it. Well, who's this Geshem guy? I mean, we know all the way through, Geshem is the guy that's his right-hand guy, everything. Well, of course Geshem is going to say it, right? Like, that, that's, there's no kind of authenticity to that. That's like, if, if you have a sworn enemy and I go to him and find out he's your sworn enemy, then I come to you and say, hey, I heard some bad things about you, and this guy also said it, you'd say, well, of course he's going to say that. He doesn't like me, right? But yet that's the tactic they take, and you know what Nehemiah realizes? Something that we should realize a lot more. Those people out there, they're going to talk and say whatever they want to. Whether he goes out there and dresses or not, people are still going to say what they want to about what Nehemiah is doing. You understand that, right? The rumors are still going to go. The voices are still going to travel. The people out there that don't like it are still going to promote the fact that he's trying to rebel against the king. They're, they're going to say all those things regardless of whether he goes out and meets them or not. It won't matter. It won't matter. He can go out and defend his honor and prove to him that that's not who I'm. And the meanwhile, the wall's not getting finished, but he can go right back after that, and they're going to go right on doing it because they don't want to hear that part. They're going to say what they're going to say. And we have to understand that sometimes, right? We hear rumors or things, and we think, we gotta, we got to make sure. Well, it, those things are going to be said. A godly leader recognizes that when things are outside of their control, it's not worth taking your time to try to put out that fire. Do, do, do you understand what I'm trying to say? I think we fall trapped to that sometimes. We feel like we have to go out and, and squash that rumor or defend that or, or, or maybe often it's us or that person, some other thing, and not realizing that people are going to say things. <laughs> I mean, I've surely you've experienced this, right? 
where you have done what you thought was a good job defending or bringing the truth in the situation and you find out that, that, that the lie just went right on anyway? Maybe you haven't, I have. Godly leaders don't waste time addressing things that are outside of their control. But in all of this, I want us to see this. Last week, I spent a lot of time talking about fear, particularly the fear of the Lord. But I spent a lot of time talking about fear. And as I spent time with that, I want you to see that those same words are appearing here, that Nehemiah and all of this doesn't lose sight of the fact that in the bottom line, the very bottom line of all this, every tactic, every point of opposition, all of it is coming back to this fear. They are trying. Look what he says. In the first attempt to get him to come out, he says, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking that their hands are going to drop from the work and it's not going to be done. There's that word. They're gonna, they want to frighten us. On the internal attempt, when they wanted to come into the temple, he says almost the same thing. He says, for this purpose, this guy was hired, that I should be afraid and act this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Both times he's recognizing that they're trying to make me afraid so that I stop doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And the realization for us is that that's why we addressed that last week. That's why he camps out on that. That's why he says, because I feared God, I wouldn't do those things. Because he's trying to make the point to us that that's going to happen to us. People are going to try to make us afraid. Satan's going to try to make us afraid. All kinds of things are going to happen to try to frighten us into not doing what God wants us to do. When we ought to realize that the fear of God should trump the fear of everything else. Right? It's the same thing we talked about last week. And Nehemiah continues to demonstrate that he's... 100% completely aware that that's where the battle's lying, over his fear. Will he give in to fear, or will his fear of God keep him doing what he's supposed to be doing and recognize that they can't do more to me than he can? And this is where I need to answer to. Last week, as we read through some verses about fear, I, uh, I read Psalm 112, the first verse, you remember what that, song, what that verse says? I'll just read it for you again. Psalm 12 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. If you were to read the rest of that psalm, which I'm not going to read all of it, but I will read part of it because it reminds me so much of Nehemiah. It's almost like this could have been written about Nehemiah. Think of, this, think of Nehemiah in this context. Today's text, last couple weeks' text of his generosity, his reforms, and his fear of the Lord, his obeying God and not worrying about the fear of man. Let me read now in verse 5 of Psalm 112. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affair with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever, and his horn is exalted in honor. It's almost like the Bible tells us what can trump when, when bad news comes or things that want to make us afraid. What, what, what can offset that when people want to make accusations about that, and unjust accusations about us or people lie about us? What can offset that? Well, if you behave in a really godly way, then they have nothing left to say. Once again, let me, I, I hope you're understanding the point. I hope, you're, I hope it's, I'm not like beating a dead horse, but I also hope you're getting it. We spend a lot of time defending our honor and our name and the things for which we stand, instead of simply doing them and being godly and silencing those who would say unjust things about us. Do you see the dis- distinction I'm making? I don't see a lot of head nods, so I'm not sure if I'm getting through or if you're just all ready for me to get, move on with the next point. I think it's key. 
I think we spend a lot of time defending our honor, defending the things we believe in, and not as much time as we ought to just simply being who we're supposed to be and doing what we're supposed to do. I think that scripture, I don't have the reference right off the top of my head, but I think it's in Peter somewhere. He says that we should by our good work silence those who would want to say uh, false things about us. Jesus said something very similar. Let our light shine so that, uh, you know, they give glory to God. So it's all the, all the same concept. You know, the, you know why it's like that, by the way, right? Because the former that I said, when we spend time defending ourselves and things we believe in, it's a selfish thing. The latter is actually obeying God. It's doing what we're supposed to be doing. Well, I told you I want to, you know, treat the texture, but spend some time with you today in, in application. So we're going to do that because I think there's a lot of things that at this point that we can pull. And it, it'll be from today's text. I mean, it's coming out of today's text, but it really honestly is a look at what's happened so far in Nehemiah overall, I think. And we're, just to, I mean, if you don't know the end of the story, like the next text we're going to get to is the wall gets finished. So that's a pretty key point in the text. So I want to make some application, but before I do that, I want to read one more text for you this morning. It's from Jeremiah. So if you would turn to Jeremiah, I think it would be good for you to actually read these words with me. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm only going to put, actually I'm not going to put anything up on the screen, so you do need to turn to Jeremiah. I want to read this as a transition to application. And I do that because I want to have us look back at the situation that Nehemiah is in and recognize what he's seeing there. That there's people out there saying lies about him, saying lies about what's happening. And there's people inside saying lies about what's going to happen. That there's people trying to stop what he's, what, what he's trying to do in, in, in God. And then we see this from Jeremiah. Now this, I think you'll see not just that, but what I want you to also see is maybe some overlays for us today. Maybe some things that as we read these verses in Jeremiah chapter 9, that you might say, this sounds a little bit like today. Which is going to set the stage for some application, I think. This is what Jeremiah writes. Now he's writing in first person here, Jeremiah. And he's seeing... He's seeing the grief, he's grieving what's happening to his people as they're about to go into exile, as they're being uh, destroyed by the neighboring nations because of their unfaithfulness to God. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they, now notice, he's sad for what's happening to his people, but notice what he says. For they, his people, they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Think for a moment for Nehemiah, before we come too much in today. Think for a moment for Nehemiah, what it must have felt like to have opposition come from the outside. People that he expected it from. People that were not going to be his biggest fans. People that didn't like that there was a new guy in town and changing things and taking influence away. That's to be expected, right? What does it feel like 
when the person on the inside turns towards you and says, hey, I'm going to try to distract you too. I'm going to try to lead you away too. I'm going to put my allegiance with that guy out there. These verses carry a bit of that, don't they? Look at some of those words that I read. I don't think it takes a brainiac for us this morning to bring these verses into our culture today and say, they're very true for us. And I don't think it takes two bright of Bible scholars to say, that's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Brother against brother, mother against father, son, sorry, not mother, son, Son against father, mother against daughter. I didn't say that right. And I'm not trying to be, please understand, if you, if you know me, I'm not an alarmist. I don't get, I, I sometimes don't react enough to things probably. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there's a sense in which we see what's happening with Nehemiah and we say there are things that I feel in our midst, around us. Deceit upon deceit, evil against evil, saying peace, and yet there's an ambush planned. And sometimes it's expected when we're out there, and it hurts a lot more when it comes from in here, from people that we thought. I would guess for many of us, I know this is true for me, for many of us, this past year that we just came through this pandemic and election, all kinds of stuff, and there's all this polarization Probably the most discouragement came from such bitter disagreements among people that I thought were brothers and sisters in Christ, quite frankly, that I thought liked each other. So what do we do? My transition there is not to talk about that necessarily, but it's to say, let's look at the text and let's look at Nehemiah and recognize that this man is absolutely 100% the figure we hold up in front of ourselves and say, this demonstrating what it's like to be a believer in these times. For example, we see Nehemiah, and I already covered this a bit, but I want to cover it again because I think for us today, as we're living in an environment that is... Uh, not like what most of us grew up in, it's critical, it's imperative that we stay focused, that we stay focused on our work. Look at what Nehemiah says. I love these words. I love these words. Oh, that we would own these words when we're doing the work of the Lord. I'm doing a great work, he says. Why should that work stop for me to come out to you? Like, why should I get this? Think about what, think about it. He is aware that God has asked me to do something, and that's the most important thing. And it's a great work if God has asked me to do it, and I can't leave it. I can't, I, I couldn't. I would be shirking my duty if I were to leave to go address something else. But I would like us this morning to understand or to perhaps think about what is the work that God has called you to? What light has he called you to shine? What places of influence has he given to you? And can we say to every other distraction, I'm doing a great work. Why would I leave that to stop that to go address this distraction, whatever it may be, and recognize that, quite frankly, let's, let's, let's be honest, 
many of those distractions come from our own flesh of what we want to do. I'm doing a great work. You know what Paul wrote in Corinthians? He wrote these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Often when I share this verse, I tend to camp out on the back part of that verse as an encouragement to people to say, hey, keep working because your labor's not in vain. Today I want to camp out on the first part of that verse because that's where I want to point us to. That's the example Nehemiah is laying for us and staying focused. Look at those words. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding, super abounding, always abounding in what? Making yourself more money? Making sure your entertainment needs are met? Making sure you're hanging out with your friends? Always abounding, being steadfast and immovable in the work of the Lord. I don't want to be harsh. Please, friends, understand. I don't want to be harsh. But I wonder sometimes whether we even know what the work of the Lord is. It's a great verse to try it out, right? But how many of us can take an honest look at our lives and say, I'm doing the work of the Lord? And please understand, I don't, I'm not saying this as if I'm a pastor, so I'm definitely nailing it. I can waste just as much time as the rest of you. Quite likely, I waste more time than some of you. We have such a great need to stay focused in these days. But I'm going to tell you, it's hard to stay focused unless we have this next thing. Because <laughs> it's hard to know what we should be focused on unless we have discernment. Notice what happens. Again, from the outside, it's, it's expected. It's no big deal. Hey, these guys are sending letters. They're intimidating. They're doing everything they can to get me to come out there and away from the work. No, 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 no. But then this guy on the inside who prophesies, he does something really spiritual. He's, he, he's, he's like speaking the right language, and he comes and says, hey, you need to protect yourself. They're going to come get you. By the way, uh, there's a sense in which you could take his statement that he says they're going to come kill you in the night. Part of that, uh, if, depending on how you interpret that, actually means they're going to come kill you tonight. Not in the night, but tonight. Like, you need to do it now. Your life is about to be in grave danger. You need to come hide now, quick. It's totally different because he's speaking the right language, right? He's prophesying. He's saying things. Now, this isn't completely clear until you read the end because you recognize that that's, that's what the prophets were, were saying. He's saying, you need to protect yourself. You need to come save yourself. You're too important to lose. We couldn't do it, Nehemiah, without you. And he says, but I understood and I saw that God hadn't sent him. That wasn't God doing that. Though it came formed as if God was saying, Nehemiah, go protect yourself. Nehemiah said, that wasn't God. You see, we cannot stay focused on the right things if we're not able to discern what those things are. If we're not able to recognize when distractions come, no, that's not from God. Yep, this one, this was from God, so I, this is what, I, now I can't be distracted from that, but this is right. We must discern. 1 John 4, 1 tells us that, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone on in the world. You understand the trajectory here, right? Like, what got Israel in trouble when they, all things were falling apart? They had false prophets. You see in Nehemiah rebuilding, guess what? There's false prophets. It is no different today in our world. There are still false prophets. 
People saying they're saying things in the name of the Lord and it's just not true. How do we know? How do we know? Uh, Lynn, Lynn's tracking with me this morning. Well, we have to know our God first, right? And the best way for us to know our God is this little book we have right here. Mine's not so little, I guess, but we need to know the Bible. We need to know whether the things that we're hearing sound like, match up with what's happening, what's, what's being written in here. We also need to just know God. Like, we need to know him. That's my next point, actually. I didn't make a point about reading the Bible because that didn't come out of the text, and I can't teach things that aren't in the text. But I can say things that are in the text. And I see in Nehemiah this incredible, I, I want you to notice this. I don't know if you noticed this when I read this because it just slips in there. But this incredible, this incredible thing that Nehemiah had, this constant prayer. Look what he does. I mean, this should blow your mind, by the way. He's in the middle. Let me just read it for you. He's in the middle of talking. He says, I said, you know, he's sending uh, Sambalat back these things. He's, he's addressing Sambalat. No such things, this is verse 8. No such things as you have said have been done. You're inventing them out of your mind. All they, all they wanted to do, and then he turns back to us and says, I'm just telling you, all they wanted to do was frighten us from thinking their hands were, and they're thinking the hands are going to drop, the work is not going to be done. And look what he does. Same sentence, same conversation, doesn't even change, and suddenly it's a prayer. But God you strengthen my hands. I'm telling you what we see, and it's not the first time, by the way. I pointed out earlier that, that Nehemiah has this ability. He's talking, talking, but he's talking here all the time. And he's switching back. He doesn't, he doesn't have to say, and then I said back to this letter, and I told him no, and here's what was really going on. And then I said, oh, God, you've, I prayed, and I, I shut my... He's just, it just comes out of him because that's who Nehemiah is. He says... This is what's going on, and God, you, you got to help me here. you got to strengthen my hands. They want my hands to be weak. you got to strengthen it. I see in Nehemiah this constant prayer, this constant communication with his God, and that, friends, is what let him know that that prophet was not speaking from God because God was also talking to him. And we cannot have proper discernment without constant prayer, which in turn... In turn means we can't be focused on what we're supposed to be focused on. You see how this is building on itself? We are to stay focused, but unless we know what we're supposed to stay focused on, which requires discernment, we can't do that. Unless we pray constantly, we're not going to have very good discernment. It's also quite possible, by the way, to work all these things backwards and recognize that maybe we're not as focused or doing the things of the Lord because we're not doing this last one which means we don't have discernment, which means we really have no clue what we're supposed to be doing, and so we just do what we want to. Ouch. That's a big ouch. I want to say one more thing. It's not going to necessarily build as greatly as all the other ones did, but I see something that's really key in this text that I think I need a lot more of. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you up front, this one's for me. It might also affect you, but it's for me. We should see when Nehemiah is asked to come in the temple to protect his life. Look at that line he says. He says, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? But that word really, I mean, you could read that one way and say to live in the temple, but that's not really what the idea was, was to hide and to save his life in the temple. Now he's saying, the words he's saying is like, look at me, I'm a leader. I can't go and hide to save my life. But what we're hearing on the undertones is Nehemiah saying, if anything smacks a little bit of self-preservation, I'm going to avoid it. 
if my decision is influenced by what keeps me safe, that's not right. That's not correct. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not asking us to, be, to, to, to go out and intentionally put ourselves in danger. We know that's not correct. What I'm asking, that's usually not a problem, by the way. Can I just say that? That's usually not a problem. I'm asking us to recognize that there are lots and lots of times when we make decisions simply based on self-preservation. What's going to be best for me? What's going to keep me the most safe and the most happy and the most secure? And I'm telling you, that reeks of not being fully committed to our Savior. For he had what kind of attitude, according to Philippians chapter 2? What kind of attitude did Jesus have? Did he consider equality with God something to be grasped, to hang on to? Did he say, well, I, I got to protect my life? No. He emptied himself. He came in the form of man, and being found in the form of man, he humbled himself to the point of being a servant, and he was killed on a cross. And it is only because of that that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Right? Friends, we like to believe differently, but the path hasn't changed. The pattern hasn't changed. It is death before resurrection. You cannot have resurrection without death. You have to die. So anything that preserves your life, that tries to save your life, well, Jesus said that, didn't he? You can try to save your life, but you're going to lose it in the end. But the one that loses his life for my sake, what happens? We'll find it. We'll find it. It is not customary. It is one of the, I believe, basic backwardness or upside-downness of God's kingdom. It is not customary for us as humans, but I believe we need to be very suspicious of anything that is aimed at preserving us. If I can be so frank with you, I just don't think God is that interested in that. If I could further encourage you to think a little beyond that blunt statement, why would he be when he has planned for us what he has planned for us? <laughs> right? Why would he be? Why would it be his goal to preserve your life here if he knows what's waiting there? And I might ask us then, why would it be ours? Why would our goal to be to preserve our life here no matter what if we know what's waiting there? I'm not trying to be defeatist. I think you understand me. I'm making a point. We like to protect ourselves as much as possible. And I see in Nehemiah, he said, hey, this is critical. I, there's, there's a task I'm supposed to be doing, and they're trying to stop it, but God is saying this needs to happen, and I will not protect myself because I will trust in God. Remember what Psalm 112 said? When he hears bad news, this man who trusts in the Lord and fears his commandments, when he hears bad news, his heart is not afraid, for he trusts in God. I could say this about every sermon. Where are the Nehemiahs for today? Which ones of us will be willing to be Nehemiahs today? God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you have brought us to this place of, well, quite frankly, difficulty. You expose our selfishness. You expose our weakness. You expose our desire for earthly things and our desire for self-preservation. You expose our lack of committedness to you. You do all those things and they don't feel very good for me, God, for us. But 
Can I say this about you, God? It's one of the reasons I love you. It's one of the reasons I, I love you, God, is in the midst of bringing things to us that are hard and difficult, you are somehow able by your spirit to bring encouragement through that, to call us, to woo us closer, to say, but leave that behind. To help us see that by your spirit there's a different way. We, we can become like Nehemiah, who really honestly is just a forerunner of Jesus Christ. We can become like Christ, who stayed focused on the task, who discerned. He knew the moment people walked up whether, what they were, what, what were going to say, what they wanted, what they were really after. He had the ability to just pierce with those questions, God. And he communicated with you, Father, all the time. And he certainly did not strive to preserve his life. So God, it leaves us in a place when we have recognized what you've revealed in us this morning and we have uh, maybe been led to the place to say, I don't want it to be that way, is for us now to just tell you that and to say, God, I want it to be different than what it's been. I want to be more focused on the work of the Lord that you have for me. I want to have better discernment. I want to know you. I want to have communication with you. I, you're, you're not about making me guilty, God. You're about helping me to grow because I want that. And I'm so sorry that I protect my life so much. I want to give it to you. I want to be poured out as my Savior was for your sake, for the sake of others, to serve and not to be served. Let me have the mind of Christ. Let us have the mind of Christ. Let us, as we're building walls and we're raising those things, as we're reforming things, let us have the mind of Christ, Jesus, we beg you. And we thank you. I thank you that you are so gracious, God. You're so gracious. You're so full of mercy that I don't deserve, that we don't deserve. For we, before we began, it's a bit, of a bit of a coming back to where we began. We recognize that, that it's our sinfulness that got us in this place to start with. And we're so sorry about that, God. Thank you for the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and the hope that it brings. Oh, God, I pray that you would plant in us the holy desire, not only to do your work, to be in communication with you, but to recognize that what you have before us in eternity far, 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 far outweighs anything this earth has to offer. We reject you, enemy, Satan. We reject you. We reject our own flesh. We die to ourselves. We reject what that has to offer. And we choose to pick up our cross to follow you, Jesus. Trusting that in that, you will bring life to us. And you've shown yourself faithful. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.